On the Full Voice podcast, we have had some incredible conversations with professionals about how we hold space for our students. And now, more than ever, teachers have a better understanding and hopefully a greater appreciation that our students are bringing more than just repertoire and voice challenges into our professional spaces. Now, in previous episodes, we have discussed strategies to be more present, to be more mindful, to make our instructional cues more effective, and to create safer spaces for our clients to the best of our ability. Now, today on the podcast, I am speaking with the delightful Megan Durham. She is a voice teacher, a singing voice specialist, and a trauma-informed voice care facilitator. Our conversation about trauma-informed teaching includes looking at how we define trauma and how trauma can show up in our bodies and in our studios. Now, after navigating this world during a pandemic, I think this conversation with Megan is so timely. And Megan offers wonderful, helpful resources and action steps for teachers who want to learn more. Right here on the Full Voice Podcast. Hello, thank you, and welcome. Thank you for tuning into the Full Voice Podcast, and welcome to our show. My friend and colleague, we have a fabulous, fabulous, very timely conversation with a wonderful human today. And I'm I'm so excited. Um, talking to Megan was very enlightening and it gave me so many, many things to think about. And as we are all, uh, and I know this has been said a million times, but as we are all shaking off the last two years and dealing with, again, I hate this term, but I'm doing air quotes, new normals, and starting to see things get back to normal. We've all been through a lot. But even before the pandemic, our students could bring a lot of anxiety and stress and trauma into our studios. Now, my guest today is Megan Durham, and we are talking about being trauma-informed and her work as a trauma-informed voice care facilitator. Now, before we dive into the show, I want my listeners to know, and Megan has asked me to mention this as well, that Megan is not a licensed medical health care provider. And trauma-informed voice care is not a form of psychotherapy or a substitute for mental health care. So friends, on our show notes and on our website, I have links to all of the resources, uh, both in book form and in um, website form. Uh, but I do want to encourage that if you or someone you know is requiring professional assistance, that you do your due diligence and seek out a professional in your area. Now, without further ado... Megan. Welcome Durham. to the Full Voice Podcast, Megan Durham. I'm so so excited to talk to you. Uh, how are you today? I'm I'm really well, Nikki. It's um, 
it's a great honor and I'll be very transparent with folks, a great vulnerability oh. at the same time. So I'm, I'm holding both of these things at the same time. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be with you today. Oh, well, that is very sweet. And I, and I have to tell, uh, I have to tell you and all my guests, it is, it is truly wonderful to have these conversations. And I know that the conversation that we're having today is is a heavy one, but we're going to approach it in in uh, in a very informative way. Uh, and I think it's a super important conversation because more and more people are becoming more aware, uh, more trauma aware, and um, that's our conversation today about being trauma informed. But before we dive into that, I would love for people to get to know a little bit about you, about your specialties, and and actually how you got into this work. Absolutely. So first of all, my, um, just a a few things. My, my name is Megan and my pronouns are she, her. I feel really grateful to live on land and work on land belonging to the Shawnee, Osage, Cherokee, Seneca, Iroquois, Miami, Hopewell, and Adena people, which is now colonized and known as Louisville, Kentucky. So if you hear a y'all or Um, I'm originally from Virginia. (laughs) I don't have much of an accent anymore, but sometimes it comes, sometimes it comes out. Um, I do embody many privileges, including access and education. Um, I also want to be really clear that um, as we talk about um, these topics today, I don't claim any ownership over this information. I'm so grateful for the teachers that have so generously shared with me. Um, This work is always evolving. And so, if we speak a year from now, it will likely be, I will be using such different language to describe perhaps myself and my work and, and um, how we think about trauma and how we think about interacting with bodies. So um, it really is about trusting an emergent experience as we go through this today. Um, so yes, how, how did I sort of get into this? Um, I, I didn't necessarily set out to offer trauma-informed work uh, to, to folks that I work with so much as it started with a way for me to reconnect with my own identity and my own voice. Uh, so I think the tools that I've gathered along the way were really first and foremost things that I found useful or integrative, perhaps healing uh, in my own experience. So, but if we were to kind of flesh that out a little bit more. After I got my master's degree, I began practicing and studying yoga, which led me down sort of one path. At the same time, I was interested in becoming a singing voice specialist. And golly, this was probably about 10 years ago. There's there's so many more resources out there now than there were then. Um, But as I began to work with folks that were navigating vocal injury, it started becoming clear that so much of what I was interacting with in the voice space was trauma. And I think this might be a a good time to also really name, there there is so much both and in this work. (laughs) And and I want to be clear that trauma can feel like a buzzword. It, it, It almost becomes trivialized and packaged, especially in social media spaces. It is such a nuanced and individual reaction to how 
um, the, our experience interfaces with that word. So not everything that is difficult is traumatic. So I, I, I just like to name that from the beginning and, and certainly we can unpack that a little bit more, but suffice it to say, I was working with clients and I just felt like I needed more support in my own body, but also to support the folks that I was working with that would be able to maintain a scope of practice. Um, so that led me down a path of trauma-informed yoga, and I have some just really brilliant teachers in that modality, Amy Weintraub, Zabi Yamasaki, if anyone's interested, and, and looking those wonderful folks up, and also movement for trauma and Jungian somatic work with uh, Jane Clapp, who is in uh, Toronto. And um, I think the last uh, sort of two names that I'll, I'll kind of mention here um, is my work has been really significantly impacted more recently by somatic healer Kai Cheng Tom, whose name I will probably mention about a thousand times here today. Uh, really brilliant work. And, and also the groundbreaking work of Resma Menachem uh, and his focus on somatic abolitionism. If you haven't read My Grandmother's Hands and you want to take one resource away from today, uh, that, that book on... Um, racialized trauma, intergenerational trauma, and how it impacts bodies is truly, truly profound. Um, so, and, and so I think as my work is growing, I'm, I'm interested in sort of the intersection of trauma and voice systems, not, not only how it impacts individual voices, but how it is sort of perpetuated through oppressive systems, which again, is a big topic. So huge. Um, huge. That's just a little bit of an overview of you. So I'll, I'll pause right there. <laughs> that's a lot. No, I, I, and this is why I am thrilled that you are here because as, as all of us are becoming more aware and, and I want to thank you for the land acknowledgement. Um, because again, that's, that's one of the ways that, that we are becoming aware we're, we're acknowledging, you know, land acknowledgements, we're acknowledging gender, you know, and I doing gender identifications. I mean, I feel that our industry is in such a challenging time, but also a wonderful time because we're really being challenged to widen our scope and there's just so many ways that we see teachers specializing and becoming, you know, going into deep diving into very specialized things. And I think, I think for a lot of us, it can feel a little overwhelming. So I'm really thankful for this conversation because I, I know, I know personally that I've had, if I look back, there have been some students that have come to my studio and I have not been able to give them a safe space because they were dealing with things that I had no knowledge of. And it was, it was a very frustrating and uh, upsetting experience because they came to me and I couldn't help them. But now we have, we have, we have more information and I love what you said, like, you know, a year from now we'll have even more information and it's always changing and we can't get stuck in the, this is how you do it mentality. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited and I'm very grateful for your time today. Um, can we start with a really basic, but not basic question? Yes. What is trauma? 
Great. I tell you what, before we even answer that question, would it feel fun to <laughs> engage get, engage in a practice first? Sure, absolutely. Would it would it feel supportive to start with something to get us into our body? Sure. Perhaps before <laughs> before we start sort of the going the, into the, our the, mind. <laughs> the, 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 yeah, exactly. Sort of the more cognitive processing. Sure. Um, so I'll just invite folks. Uh, first of all, if you're driving and listening to this, right. you might wait until <laughs> you safely pull over to the side. Um, but please take anything uh, that resonates with you today and leave what doesn't. This is a really open invitation to say no, to say, I'm not sure, or I really need to sit with this longer. Um, that invitation of no is such a huge part of this work, even when it's offering a practice. So you can kind of uh, you and your listeners can sort of decide in this moment, hmm, do I want to practice or do I want to skip ahead? Which skipping ahead is also really valid. Um, so again, framing this whole conversation, including practice around choice, to quote one of my favorite practitioners, Kai Cheng Tom, choosing is more important than doing. So this practice I, I'd love to name comes from a couple different folks that I learned this from. First, I'll name my dear friend and colleague, Emma Roselin. Uh, as well as David Trelevin, um, mind, uh, trauma-informed mindfulness practitioner and, and teacher, and then Kai Cheng Tom. So each have shared a version of this. So if it feels like uh, it's resonating with you today, I'll invite you to take your right hand if that's available. And we're going to start by making a fist. And just kind of notice that you can choose how tightly to hold this fist. And then maybe notice any activation at the sight of the fist, your grip, the fingers holding, grasping. And then maybe there's somewhere else in your body that's coming online, either in activation, in mobilization, or even a little bit of tension. And maybe any thoughts or sensations that are coming up as we hold this tightly, but perhaps not uncomfortably. And then with your other hand, I'll invite you to start to pry open your fist and kind of notice you can choose whether to give into the pry and start to release or to keep your grip firm. Kind of notice what your body wants to do. Kind of notice again any other thoughts or physical sensations coming up as you try to pry open that fist, maybe somewhere in the neck or the jaw or the back or the torso. And then we'll pause and we'll come back to our fist. And this time we'll take the opposite hand. And instead of prying, we're going to create a little nest and we'll place our fist in the palm of the hand gently cupping the fist in the palm. Maybe allowing the weight of your fist to slowly sink into the hand that's holding it. Noticing if anything starts to shift. Maybe there's a softening, maybe not. And then notice if your fist wants to open even just a little bit. You get to choose whether to open 
or whether to remain closed and how much kind of noticing in my own palm. It just wants to open a little bit, not too much today. And then when you're ready, you can let that go and bring your awareness back in the space. So Nikki, I'm curious, how did that practice land for you? Um, well, it's interesting. A uh, couple of big observations. So, um, uh, when you, when you asked, you know, is something else, is your awareness being taken somewhere else? Um, immediately by, by getting the fist all busy there, um, my, I've been struggling with some sciatic pain. So as soon as I started with that, like all my attention went to the, the pain that I've been working with and then, and right. And then, and then I'm like, okay, well I need to be focusing on my wrist. So it was a, it was an argument between no, no, you need to pay attention to me down here and not your fist. And it was interesting because there was a very back and forth, but one of the, the other thing that came up was you kept saying, um, you can choose. And of course I, as a teacher, I started reflecting, especially working with kids. I was like, do I ever ask my students tell my students that they can choose or am I always telling them what to do? So I went to my pedagogy and how do I, do I give my students options? Maybe I should give my students options. I wonder what would happen if I asked my students to choose. So my brain went to like my, <laughs> my, my verbal instructions. Cause I'm always, I'm always reevaluating the language that I use. So I, there was a struggle to stay in the present moment with the fist, to not to not think of the pain that is in my lower hip and and backside, and then to address and not take the teacher brain and turn that off. So, I, there, there you go. Um, and also, um, I have I spent many years doing um, martial arts. So, so the, so the strength in the fist was always a thing, right? Like this is, you know, how you hold your fist. So there was a lot of reflection on that. So there you go. What a wealth of <laughs> experience and, and, and so many intersecting um, emotions and sensations and goodness, thank you for sharing that response with me. One of the things that's so rich about sharing practice is as the practitioner, we never know as the teacher, we never know what's going to emerge. Um, so this particular practice, I think for me represents an embodied philosophy that we can bring into trauma-informed voice work, um, which is we can to the best of our ability um, naming also that so many of us right now as teachers are surviving, <laughs> doing the best we can with whatever is available. So I, I really want to name that up front as well. Um, but we're creating support for opening in its own time. We're not here to make decisions about how or when or to what extent <laughs> creativity or bodies or voices want to open. Can we just pause on that for a yeah. second? I, that right there, what you just said about 
in in their own time, in our own time. That is such a teacher trap, right? We are always judging our ability and our success with our students based on how quickly they progress. And here you are celebrating that that it could take time and we don't get to choose that. That's a, uh, that is a very, hmm, that's a tough one. I mean, wonderful to reflect on, but how many times we get stuck there? Oh, I am feeling the feelings right now, Megan. (laughs) It's, it's a lot. And, um, there's a lot of, um, waiting in, in this process. And, and, and I would say also sometimes not sometimes some, someone, um, you know, is, is fully ready to, 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 um, open and, and dive in and create things. And then, and other times, um, it may take eight to 10 weeks for someone to want to make a sound and, and there's no hierarchy of that. Right. Um, <clears throat> so so much of this work is being in a liminal space. I think even as a practitioner, particularly as a practitioner, and I will probably say this a million times, but for me, this work really isn't so much about what I'm offering other people as what I am noticing in myself. Am I, is my urgency to create change, to fix, (laughs) to even just create period, overshadowing where the student is right now in this moment. And sometimes it's hard to know, and sometimes we, we don't know. And so, which is why choice is, is something that we constantly come back to, because again, the choosing is more important than the doing. Wow, that that's gonna sit for a while. <laughs> We should just have we should just have a moment of silence so we can all just sit with that. Oh, uh, can I can I ask you maybe a more professional or a, a maybe a more professional yeah. a, a more personal question? Did you struggle giving people choice? Was it difficult for you to change that? Like to to go from maybe um, result driven to because a lot of studios are result-driven studios, right? Like, was it hard for you to move away from that and and give people more choice and more space? That is a wonderful question. Let me, I'm taking some time to reflect. So I taught in higher education for about 10 years. And I would say, I would say, yes, uh, you know, um, I, I feel really grateful for my conservatory education, uh, though so much of it is driven by by that. <laughs> sort of this hierarchical rising, we do this and this and this and this and this and this. Um, this is something else we could talk about later, but we're, we, we teach people to rise, but we rarely teach them that falling is also really valuable. <laughs> um, well, we can put a pin in that, but I I would say that because of my own experience, it navigating my own insecurity, my own trauma that really reared its head around graduate school. I, I think in some ways I wasn't quite as driven as perhaps 
some other uh, folks because it was something I was recognizing early on as a student in my own body. Having said that, of course, and that's definitely something that I still struggle with is wanting to feel like what I'm offering is being received, wanting someone to feel creative, wanting someone to sort of have particularly, I would say the struggle of the new student experience, you know, those first couple lessons when you, gosh, in your body, you want so desperately to connect with them. You want them to think that you're great and then you have all this to offer. So I would say absolutely those, those feelings um, are always present with my, with my body. And also, um, because of my experience as a student, it was something that was always in the back of my mind of, wow, I I never really had a lot of choice. And I think, I think I was very lucky in that, again, I started practicing, uh, and studying yoga right around the, the time that that was, uh, uh, that some of these ideas were really germinating and, and, I was very blessed to have yoga teachers that were offering choice in the body that I never experienced before. So um, I really think it's like most things, most things today is a really both and, but I think that's a beautiful question. And again, to be very clear, this is absolutely something I struggle with (laughs) as a human. Um, I'm a people pleaser. I will put that out there uh, transparently. I I want, you know, I want to connect with people desperately. And, and sometimes, and you named this beautifully earlier. Um, we can't, we can't assume that we offer a safe space. And again, that's something we can talk more fully about, but yeah. And I'm not sure if that answers your question. No, (laughs) no, I I thank you for your candor and, and to just addressing that. I think that that is one of the common struggles. Uh, That was a question that came up recently on, on the forum and our forum, it was like, I only have a half hour and I, I feel like I'm just not doing enough and and i have to i have to say that there was some beautiful responses like in a half hour you only have a half hour and you can only do so much in that time and when we put all this pressure to overproduce we're only overwhelming our students yeah i'm i'm wondering about this reframe that sometimes sometimes i consider <clears throat> That sound making, and of course, our our primary one is is singing. Although I would say any sort of sound making is an acoustic affirmation of vitality. Whoa. We, when you are singing with someone for thirty minutes, you are affirming their life that they are alive. Wow. So, so doing that is is pretty powerful. Thank you for that reminder. And and I hope teachers listening can take that and realize that, that, yeah, that 30 minutes where you're in that space with that person is, is a beautiful moment. It doesn't have to be filled with lectures about the respiratory system. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I hope it's not just putting it out there, but, but no, I mean, we, what is a valuable lesson? And and again, we have to reflect on our own experiences and our own feelings. If we are going to be addressing and holding space in a way where we are trauma informed, how important is it that we are 
constantly working with ourselves? I, I would say it's the absolute utmost of importance. I would say that that is the work. Yes, I think for for me, it's it's really less about, and I, again, I, I'll, I'll say it again, it's really less about what I'm offering to someone else. And it's more about me being in my own body and noticing when my urgency, urgency is a really big one. I'll say urgency is, um, again, this is something I will throw out and we might have to talk and unpack it another time, but urgency is a hallmark of white body supremacy. Wow. Yes. Mm, where we're constantly driven. Um, and, and so I think that's something as someone who inhabits a white body that I have to really sit with when my urgency to fix, um, overshadows again, where the student is right now. And that's about me. That's not about them. You know, my, your, our days are filled with just urgency, right? Like, mm -hmm. like the, the laundry list of things that I have to get done today. And my listeners can't see this. I'm doing air quotes, but my <laughs> list right. of things, I mean, um, how many times in a day I just can't enjoy the day because I've got A, B, C, D, E, F, G. How many things am I missing because I'm trying to get through this list of things? And and we do that in our day-to-day -day lives. We do that in our yeah. studios. You know, we do that. We've got to do our ear training, our sight singing, our song repertoire, our performance skills in a half hour, right? This That constant urgency. Wow. And I think I'll also name too, again, this work is so both. And there's some things that absolutely require our attention immediately, whether that is an urgent situation with a child, an urgent situation uh, with safety concern, um, right? There are absolutely times for that. I think for me, the site shift is when it becomes a pattern and we can't make our own choice to step out of it for a moment when we're not aware how much it is driving us and I think social media is a big driver of this as well. Again, that's a whole, that's probably a whole other conversation. But um, yeah, we really do live in a, a a bit of a scarcity mentality um, these days, particularly certain certainly the past couple of years with the pandemic. I I was wondering if you had um, a strategy for dealing with that urgency. Like, how do you address? Um, and I, and maybe this is a two-part question. The te the teacher who is feeling that they've got a rush, 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 or I've had this experience where you have that student that comes in and wants to push through everything and, and you want to slow them down and you, there's just that, that urgency to get something and get through something. What are some of your first strategies for addressing that or what would be a practice that you would encourage someone to do? Yes. So my mind is going in a lot of different directions. <laughs> um, one of the things when I think about urgency, I, I also think about a body that wants to mobilize a body that wants to move Oh goodness! Yeah, and I think as so if we if we take a teacher for example, so again, um, if I'm really anxious about something, um, 
being on a podcast, for example. (laughs) Um, And I noticed this sort of zippity, zappity sensation in my body. I on the first, we honor it. We say, I see you and I might do something. Dance party is one of my favorite go-tos for, for, for this kind of thing. Uh, shake it out, Taylor Swift, you know, always a little on the nose, but it's always uh, wonderful. Um, but something that involves movement to meet that energy, that, that sort of feeling of, um, you know, like bug zapper <laughs> in your body that, that sometimes is hard. I think as a teacher, I work with that a lot uh, in my own self in terms of before and after a session, if I'm feeling that urgency, just doing something to meet that energy with movement and playfulness. Um, I think with students, the same offering, hey, does it feel like you'd like to move a bit? Again, always coming back to choice. I also work a lot, and this comes from movement for trauma practices. Again, my teacher, and this was Jane Clapp, though there are so many out there. Um, there's a lot of practices that explore the feeling of falling in our body. Uh, the, one, the one I'll name, um, I am not a fighting monkey teacher, but this is a practice I share a lot. Fighting monkey is a really amazing movement modality. I'll encourage folks to go look that up. But one of the components in this practice is something called earthquake architecture. Um, earthquake, yeah. So earthquake architecture coming, of course, from buildings that are erected in earthquake zones that have to have a particular flexibility in order to withstand stress. Um, and so there are a lot of really fun practices involving uh, getting more uh, familiar, maybe the word comfortable with the sensation of falling over. So the next time you're on your BOSU ball, instead of trying to balance on it, what if you actively, in, in a way that feels supported, you know, you've got like a <laughs> fall on a knife or something. Um, <laughs> what if we, what if we explore that feeling of wobble in our body when we come to the edge and, and we go over the edge, <gasps> that feeling of, I have to act right. And then pausing and noticing that feeling in our body. So working with balance, working with falling out of balance, again, um, I return to that idea of in, you know, structured music education. It's, it's so hierarchical. There's, there's this huge emphasis on going up, 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 but there's um, often stigma <laughs> on falling downward and, and, and why um, my two year and a half year old falls all the time and he learns and he giggles and it's fun. Um, so I think that's something to offer to bodies as well, particularly because it's, um, it's helping our brain, our body to be able to navigate discomfort in perhaps a way that is boundary by playfulness. But then if we broaden that conversation, we're teaching the body that maybe I can widen my window of capacity just a little bit for those feelings of ooh, zap, urgent. Um, and actually we could even unpack that a little bit more with a little, um, defining of trauma and, and that kind of thing. But does that, I'm not sure. Does that answer your that, question? No, that is, that is wonderful. I, I think you've really brought to mind like urgency and, and as, as a, as a 
you know, a, a, an A type person who's driven and loves the, to check off the list and, and just, uh, having the, having that reference back to the body and, and allowing movement. I mean, we talk about that with children all the time. Like they have to move, you have to let them move and they're not horrible creatures for wanting to move. You know, you can, right. You can put that into your lessons. I think it's a wonderful reminder and, and a, a wonderful check-in for all of us. And I, and I want to thank you for that. Um, can we, do you do you want to address what trauma is? Do you want to? Let's do a little. Yeah, I know we've been sort of all over the place and danced around it, but um, well, that's okay. You know, there there are so many uh, ways that we could approach this. Again, I want to return to Resnominikim and really presence uh, his work. And in his in his book, My Grandmother's Hands, he he unpacks the idea that trauma can be anything that we mm. experience as too much too soon or too fast. I love that as uh, I, I love that because it it's so in a way broad. It, it, there's so much room. There's so much space in that. Um, it's also not the event itself. So it's, you know, a pandemic in and of itself is, is not trauma. It's when we are unable to move through our process or metabolize the emotional and physical intensity that might result. Um, or we're not given agency. We're unable to fight back. We're unable to make choices about our bodies and our voices. Um, trauma is interpersonal. It's intergenerational. It's cultural. Uh, and again, a lot of my work uh, right currently um, is exploring how voice as the culture uh, specifically a culture steeped in Eurocentric and colonial white body supremacy, ideals of beauty and health and ability impacts singing bodies. Um, I think another way you could think about this that I have found helpful is trauma can be um, sort of perpetuated when there is a lack of access to resources to bring us back inside our window of capacity. Singing is such a great resource. <laughs> so what we're offering is in and of itself a resource to find joy, to find vitality, to connect with and perhaps reconnect with life. Um, but I do think this is where privilege really comes into play because the more privilege we carry, the more resources we have, often without even thinking about it. Trauma can cause us to feel out of control hypervigilant, constantly scanning our uh, outside environment for threat. It may also lead to emotional uh, and physical numbness on the inside where feel, um, feelings of futility were really high. I think for artists over the past couple of years, what's the point of this? And then that slow sort of disconnection with self with creativity, with artistry, and, and of life, sort of life force. Um, so I'll pause right there if um, anything's coming up. Oh, a million things are coming up. Oh, my goodness. Um, can, we, can we dive into specifically ways that you've seen in your practice how trauma would show up for somebody in the singing studio? 
how does that show up? Like what, what, what do we see? What do you, what could we see? Obviously there's no, there's no, um, one way that it shows up, but what, what are some of the things that we might notice? That's a great, that's a great question. Um, so trauma can impact bodies in such a wide variety of ways. Um, but I think if, um, and I'm always a little bit hesitant, um, I'm, I'm, because I'm not a researcher, I'm, um, there are so many brilliant folks doing work, uh, in, in this department in terms of, of physical reactivity, emotional reactivity, but what I, what I really notice on a really broad spectrum of food is doing that is because of the historical master student model of pedagogy, it often operates under assumed deficiency. Okay. So we're assuming People coming in, they need our expertise to be fixed, right? So I think what I see is that singers can feel stigmatized or receive the untrue message um, when they internalize that responses like gasping for air, difficulty exhaling consistently, articulation difficulty, mental emotional numbness, fatigue, a big one, muscle constriction, often without awareness, you know, sort of shoulders up here. Um, oh, were you aware? Oh, no, I wasn't aware. I, I want to be really clear. This doesn't mean trauma is present. Not at all. Um, we, we have, you know, <laughs> it is not my job to make assumptions, but I would say really broadly, these are some characteristics of um, that we might see um, in, in trauma. And, and, and again, folks listening, I'm, I'm very rarely black and white about anything. So, um, things like shaking, um, shaking is often a, a way often, not always, but sometimes a way in which the body is trying to complete the survival cycle, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. And then the body wants to let that <clears throat> release animals do this, uh, in humans, Sometimes we call this neurogenic tremoring, something that wants to happen, but often what has been conditioned in voice work is hands by your side. <clears throat> no moving, right? Stop the shaking. Yeah, ground that body, um, which then sends the message that my body doesn't have permission to complete that cycle. So <clears throat> another one is perhaps an inability, um, something I see a lot, both with physical voice injury as a single way specialist, but also folks that have experienced things like uh, PTSD, CPTSD is inability to sense sound or a great difficulty experiencing sound and breath moving internally, um, not having an awareness of sensation. So intro, like intro perception, mm -hmm. introception, yeah. yeah, even proprioception. Yeah. And that's actually something we can talk more about, um, which makes good sense because these were ways in which a body has acted as a fortress under immense amounts of stress and oppression. So how does it change the way we think about voice pedagogy when we understand that much of what we might have been taught is a vocal fault or a technical issue might actually be a survival strategy? That's really interesting. And I just want to say, you know, often in a studio, you might say to someone, how does that feel? And that simple question could be actually a trigger because they don't want to, or they can't at that particular moment. Interesting. 
And that's hard. And I'll also name, um, I use that, you know, I say, how does that feel as well? But I think you named something really beautiful, which is maybe the first couple of times you use it, you kind of notice, Ooh, I'm not sure that that is landing. Let me change um, my approach here a little bit. Yeah. Ask, um, uh, um, what was that experience like? Did that feel fun or did that feel, I think if it's not pleasurable, why are we doing it? <laughs> that's something else um, that's so important in this work. Uh, again, um, we want it to be, f- and not in a way, again, that's bypassing, but in a way that says we're bringing, we're creating a space. And I think singing is a, a beautiful sort of natural container for this work because we're we're not here. And, and, and again, I should refer back to this in terms of scope of practice. Um, one of the things I think about is I'm sharing practices. I'm not sharing story. So I'm not really addressing someone's um, trauma history straight on. I might know a bit about their journey. Um, Chances are I don't. And so when we are, again, attuned to our own body, my own body's sort of signals of, ooh, Am I feeling urgency here? Or, you know, am I feeling, you know, like I can um, connect uh, in a way that's a little bit uh, slow, um, whatever that might be in the moment. I'm, I'm creating a space of reflection where I'm, I'm leading, hopefully, with humility rather than assumption. Um, I also want to be, so this is something else that, um, it comes up a little bit because we're talking a lot about activation. I think artistry requires activation. <laughs> so lest we think, and, the, and this is so big, um, lest we think that the fight or flight or sympathetic nervous system uh, is, is a bad thing. We, we don't want to label any part of our body. Um, and also bodies can't be reduced to models of behavior either. So there are so many states that our bodies can be in at one time. And um, I'm unpacking this uh, in my own work a little bit. Um, so this is a little bit of a fresh idea, but sometimes I think we overemphasize calm. We overemphasize down regulation. Um, because sometimes some, sometimes, right. The urge to calm someone down is actually an avoidance strategy. Because we don't want to be uncomfortable. Can I just thank you for saying that? Can I just share something that I that I did, and and it was such a. So I had a wonderful little boy in my studio and he was like every little boy, like so, like so energetic and a lot of energy. And this is, this is way back in my early days of singing. And my ultimate goal was to try to wrangle him to trying to get him to calm down. I'm doing air quotes again to get him to sing. And, and now thankfully in my studio, I had a lot of different stations and he would so be engaged when we were moving and standing and singing. But every single time I brought him to the piano to stand and sing, he would get angry, so angry. And I, and I was so thankful that his mom was in the room. So I always had a seating area for parents and I missed 
all of the cues. I was so pleased that he would just stand still that I could not actually see how angry he was. Like he was like literally locking down and staring in one spot. And I'm thinking, well, aren't I the best teacher? Cause I got him to calm down. And finally, and thankfully his mom said, it's okay to tell Nikki how you're feeling right now. And he turned, he's like, I don't like this at all. I was totally unaware. I was just so narrow-minded and trying to get him just to stop moving so that we could, again, doing air quotes, do a productive lesson that I missed the cues in his body and that making him stand still really upset him. So, so much, like everything you're telling me, I'm like, oh, yes, ouch. Oh, the good point. (laughs) (laughs) And this is, I stumble hourly (laughs) with all of this. And this is why I think it feels really vulnerable for me to share because there, um, this is messy work. This is not digestible Instagram post work. Um, (laughs) (laughs) even in my own self, I I have um, tried. Um, but you know, I think you so I'm just, I'm taking a moment. So everybody knows I'm just taking a moment to let that story sink into my own body, Nikki. And I'm so grateful for this chair because I think that resonates so deeply. Yeah. I, um, I, uh, I, especially with kids, I mean, as people, my listeners know, I do a lot of work with children and they are my passion. And, um, I, the one thing that I tell the teachers when we do our teacher training is that, um, you know, don't assume that you can read them, you know, don't assume that, that I, cause I've always had an open door policy and I've had parents in the room and I am so glad because I have like you, like, uh, I have, I trip up all the time. I miss them. I miss the subtle, body language or how they react because I don't know that child or that student intimately and and we can never truly know. And, you know, while my focus is that list of things I want to accomplish in the lesson, I often, I have made, I have made big errors. I have missed big cues and I have, you know, I've always, you know, reflected back and thought, oh, I could have done so much better. I, I could have, I could have approached that differently. And even with language, right? How, how I, the words I choose to use and, you know, uh, there's just so much, there's just every day, there's just so many things that you, you, when you replay it, you can go back and go, I could have done that better. Yeah. Wow. And I think the word nonlinear comes to mind with this work. It's, it's a nonlinear. Some, some people ask, how do I become (laughs) trauma-informed? I say, I don't know. I, I frankly, I, there's, there are trainings <clears throat> for sure. Um, but it is such a messy nonlinear journey. Am I trauma-informed? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, and I know that might seem strange, but I think uh, it's, it's such, it, um, it's, I'll use this word again. It's such a messy human interconnected process where we're holding in one hand humility and we're holding in the other hand dignity. And I can trust my knowledge and my skill and my everything that I've learned, my privilege, um, you know, 
of education and access. And the other hand, gosh, sometimes when you're with someone, none of that really matters. It sort of applies. <laughs> does, doesn't matter, but it, it's you really, you really have to take time to consider uh, again that we just don't know. There's so much we don't know. I love what you said about um, as much as we can try, it's, we can't guarantee a safe space. Yes. That I think, cause I think I, I would like to say that I think safe space is like a, a catchphrase a lot of people are using. And I think that even with the best intentions. Yes. Yes, we can. So the CDC names six guiding principles for being trauma-informed and organization, you know, whether it's yogic modality or educational modality, most places that use the phrase trauma-informed have some sort of principle around these six, and they are safety, trust, choice, um, peer support of uh, cultural competency and oh goodness, voice, uh, voice. I'm, I'm, you can look them up. I'm now that I'm thinking about it, it's flying out the window, but there's, so, so there, there, there are sort of these, these, these core concepts and, and while safety is one of them, um, I think again, what, what we are really starting to see is that when, um, we cannot assume that we offer safety to someone, especially if we inhabit a white body, because for so many people, safe has never been part of their lived experience. Um, I think it's wonderful to be able to feel safe uh, in our body, at home in our body, perhaps safer, uh, safe enough is, is sometimes used. Um, but that can take a lot of a, a lot of work and privilege and resource. So I think for me, again, being a trauma-informed practitioner really isn't about creating safety so much as it is about learning to be with whatever is present in the space, just like your beautiful example um, with your with your student. And again, it doesn't mean that everyone coming through the door has trauma. <laughs> we have no idea if that word resonates with their lived experience. But it might mean that we use these ideas as a guiding principle in humility, in non-assumption, in, in checking, again, as a, as a woman who inhabits the white body, how much space am I taking up? This is huge. Is my space, is my voice leaving room for agency for the other person? Did they feel that they have a voice in the space as well? Um, and, and hey, look, this is just my opinion, but what their, their experience is so much more important than how I hear it. Wow. Mm. That's a lot right there, and and I, uh, it's making me reflect back on on so many experiences with students and just with other people. There's just so much there, Megan. Oh wow, 
I, and I, I stumble. I also want to say, this sounds really great when you can edit it and, you know, <laughs> carry it on a podcast, but to be, to be really transparent with this, I struggle with this daily. It's yeah. not something, you know, this is, this is born out of my own struggle continually. So. I, I really appreciate your honesty and vulnerability that you're sharing with that. And, uh, and I thank you for that. I think, um, that's also one of the things that it's very difficult for people in our industry is just to say, you know, I'm learning or I don't know, or I'm, I'm struggling with this myself. I think we really struggle to, you know, we always feel that we need to be the expert in the room and how, how difficult it is to, to say, I'm not the expert in the room or how, how challenging it can be to say, you know, I don't know that. And I need to get back to you. Like, I think, I think that, sharing what you've shared today is fabulous. Now, I have a couple of specific questions for you, but I do want to let everybody know that we're going to have Megan back because this is such a such an important topic and there's just so much more we want to dive into. But where would you suggest if a teacher has listened to this podcast and and would like to get started, where what are some of the resources for someone that is just opening the door to learning more about being trauma-informed, what would you recommend? It's a great question. So um, if you if you already have a, maybe a movement practice, for example, if you are someone that practices yoga, you might check with your studio to see if there's a trauma-informed uh, yoga uh, clinic. Uh, Zabi Yamasaki, I'll name again, was a really brilliant um, influence in my own path who offers that. If if yoga is not part of your experience, there um, there's a wonderful resource called the Embody Lab. And they offer so many wonderful courses. Uh, again, I'll, I'll name Kai Cheng Tom teaches for them. <clears throat> um, another one, if you are someone who has a mindfulness practice, or maybe that's something that um, feels uh, uh, curious. It piques your curiosity. David Trelevin, uh, trauma-sensitive mindfulness, another really wonderful resource. And what, what I love about these folks is that they offer a lot of free things as well. Um, we, we, we want to pay them for their work, but, but, I, but I think what's wonderful is if this is really new for you, there's a lot of great free resources on their website that you can dip your toe into and, and see, um, because there's no one path. Um, there's really no one path in this work. It really is maybe starting with yourself, choosing which of these modalities really meets my need first. Uh, again, really presencing that this work has to begin with our own practice mm. and our own sitting in the stew. <laughs> <as it were. laughs> um, oh, I love that. Um, is there, is there any, you've mentioned um, my grandmother's hands, uh, the mm -hmm. book. Is there any other books that have really uh, moved you or you would recommend? Yes. Okay. So The Politics of Trauma, Somatic Healing and Social Justice by Stacey K. Haynes. Okay. Um, is, is, a, is a really wonderful. So, um, you know, the one that everyone sort of names is The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Uh, I'll say... 
um, my grandmother's hands. Um, but frankly, uh, Kai Cheng Tom's writing mm. uh, online is really powerful. Um, Jane Clapp's writing about trauma in the body is really wonderful. Not a particular book, but has a, has a great uh, website. Um, goodness, there there there's so many. Um, I'll, I also want to name another person. Uh, this isn't direct. I would say it's not directly trauma related, but it's sort of, um, Mia, Mia Mingus mm-hmm. is a disability activist, um, who I find currently to be just r- really impactful in my own life and, and journey. Um, I believe, uh, website is, uh, leaving evidence, but Mia Mingus, a really okay. wonderful writer. I, these are so helpful. I'm going to with your help, I'm going to put links to these resources in the show notes and on the on the web page, so that that anybody that would like to dive into this. But uh, Megan, we will have you back. We have a few more topics we want to unpack, and I do want to thank you for your this timely information, your honest approach to it, and I know that you are going to uh, really inspire people to do some some personal work and to really reflect on what they uh what they can do to be more aware and informed in their studios so thank you so much for today thank you so much for having me um it's such a joy a very special thank you to megan for that timely and helpful conversation There are links in the show notes and to our website page with all of the information and resources that Megan mentioned today in our show, and I highly recommend that you check them out. I would also like to remind everybody that if you or someone you know is looking for professional licensed mental health care providers to reach out, do your due diligence, and search out someone locally for yourself or for someone you know and friends, uh, please be sure to work within your scope of practice in your teaching studio. My friend and colleague, as always, from Hemford Forest, Nova Scotia, Canada, I am sending you well wishes and hoping for inspired teaching and happy singing. Mm-hmm.